and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. I'm still making these podcasts. Today's guest is the amazing Elizabeth Day, who's absolutely everywhere at the moment. You might have heard her on other podcasts, but I just had to get her on mine as well. There's too much to discuss. She is an author, journalist and broadcaster. She's written four critically acclaimed novels so far, including The Party, which I absolutely loved, which was a Richard and Judy book club pick. She is currently a columnist for You magazine. She writes really interesting columns about all the things that we are thinking. And she's a feature writer for many publications in the UK and US, including The Telegraph, The Times, The Guardian, New York Magazine, The Observer, Vogue. I mean, I literally could go on. She writes for every single magazine out there. And she always picks such interesting topics. And she also has interviewed so many incredible people basically all of the A-listers and she always gets such a juicy interview out of them. So it's no surprise that she launched her own interview podcast, the chart-topping podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, which celebrates all of the things that haven't really gone right and really pulls back the curtain on all of those really successful, perfect people who we're all jealous of and asks them what they've done that has failed in their lives. The interviewees include Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Lily Allen, Alistair Campbell, Dolly Alderton. It's really great. And her book, the Sunday Times bestseller, How to Fail, was based on the podcast and is out now. It's just come out. And it's a brilliantly honest memoir about celebrating all the things that go wrong. So really hope you enjoy this episode. It was so nice meeting up with Elizabeth in real life and chatting and I really enjoyed making this podcast episode. So hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoy listening. And if you did, please leave an iTunes review. That would be fantastic. So here it is. And I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm so thrilled to be in Foils, my favourite bookshop of all time in London with the amazing Elizabeth Day. Hi, Emma. So nice to be here. This is so amazing. I feel like I know you really well through the book now and also your podcast. So I know I haven't seen you for ages, but I feel like close to you right now. Ditto. Well, it's just been so amazing to see your career go from amazing to more amazing to even more amazing because we first met in 2013 you were telling me and I remember that meeting so vividly that I was chairing a panel and you came up to speak to me like the biggest fangirl and do you know what Bryony Gordon always takes the mick out of me for that night as well because I just remember bounding up to both of you and it was it's funny because that like I think I was about 24 25 and there's this enthusiasm that comes with being like in your mid-20s now I'm probably a bit more reserved if I'm like you know a fan of someone but yeah it was such a lovely experience for me because it was one of the first times that that had ever happened to me that someone wanted like my advice and now I feel so ridiculous looking back on that because you didn't need my advice at all you gave me such good advice though honestly (laughs) and it's all those small moments that lead up to being brave enough to write something oh that's a lovely thing to say but we're here to talk about how to fail in the podcast uh medium but also obviously your incredible hardback book that is well, there's about 5,000 copies next door that you've got to sign in a bit. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, as someone who has been a fan of you for a long time with your novels, and that's how I knew you for so long, how was this different writing nonfiction? It was actually, I was really nervous about doing it. So 
I didn't have the idea for this book. So I failed to have the idea about this book about <laughs> failure. I launched the podcast and I thought that the podcast was just going to exist in its own right. And it was my editor at Fourth Estate who has edited all of my novels who suggested that it would be a really good nonfiction book. And I agreed with her, but I was super intimidated at the prospect of it. And it was only when I started writing that I realised I had a lot to say. And once I realised that, it was actually really cathartic to write Mm. and I don't think that you should seek to write for catharsis I don't think you should treat writing books as a therapy process Mm -hmm. but if that's a byproduct that's a really nice thing that happens and I found it really liberating and the main way that it differed was that with writing novels obviously I have to invent an entire world and and make up characters Mm. and have a very clear idea of plot structure whereas with this book I didn't need to invent anything because I'd lived it. Mm. And there's something about writing from your lived experience that I really enjoyed. And it just turned out that I'd been thinking about all of these things subconsciously for many years. And then to get the opportunity to write it down without a word Mm. count given to you by a magazine editor, um, without the need for there to be a particular angle on a particular topic, but just writing for myself and for the people who listen to the podcast and hopefully for a new readership was a really wonderful experience after I got over the initial nerves. <laughs> That's amazing because you'd want it that way around where you're like, wow, I've got so much to say rather than, oh God, actually I don't because I think that might happen to people. Totally. And at the beginning when I signed the book deal, I said to my editor, is it okay if I do like quite a short book? <laughs> and um, Can we have the minimal word count really, really low? <laughs> it's more like, you know, a, a long poem. <laughs> Um, and uh, she agreed to that but then it turns out that I completely as I got into it I was just really passionate about the things that I wanted to talk about Mm. because I think many of the things in the book are stories that don't get a lot of airplay primarily because they are women's stories and they're the stories that I want to tell and that I believe passionately in and the other thing that was really nice I know that you love LA Mm. and I love LA I'm I'm imagining you because you wrote the book in LA didn't you on a balcony and I was like exactly really see that happening just to be that odious person (laughs) but um, a really good friend of mine who I met I spend a lot of time in LA because I do love it there I find that the time difference means you don't get emails after 2pm which is so good it's really it just honestly frees up this whole part of your brain and um and she needed someone to house it and I ended up in her house with a beautiful terrace and I would write in the mornings in the sunshine and so actually the act of writing was a nice experience during which I got a tan which is not always the case and clearly there were elements that were more tortuous than others but generally it was a really positive experience I love the is it the afterward yes um when you talk about the episode that you did when you were interviewed by Dolly Alderton and it's interesting because I think if someone didn't know you or hadn't read that they might think wow this writer is just so open and she's it's come so easy to her to write about you know the honest you know more darker uncomfortable bits about their lives but actually you talk in detail about how vulnerable you were after that interview and you nearly didn't post it I get asked a lot And it's a compliment. I get asked a lot about, well, how, what do you know about failure? Because professionally you've done okay, kind of thing. Mm. And, and I think that that really misses the point because actually, whilst I might have appeared professionally successful at certain points in my life, there was a lot of personal stuff going on that I wasn't revealing. And when Dolly interviewed me, it was such an extraordinary experience. It was like a really intense therapy session, but a really intense therapy session with a really good friend. Mm. And and then listening to it back, 
I found the hardest bit because obviously you have to mm-hmm. make edits to yourself and that it was just a deeply intense experience and yeah I write in the afterward about how I had to be persuaded by Dolly and by my producer Chris that it was valid I didn't want it to be self-indulgent and they said they thought it was valid and I put it out there and I was really immediately overwhelmed by the response which was extraordinarily positive and um, I took to my bed like some Mm. Victorian spinster in need of smelling salts honestly for the next day, I just was exhausted, utterly exhausted. And I just had to like stay in bed all day. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that told me something really important. It told me that strength comes through vulnerability. But to get to a point of vulnerability and openness, you need to be relatively courageous. Mm-hmm. And I did get people getting in touch with me who I hadn't heard from for years saying that I was very brave, which is an extremely flattering thing to hear. And I'd never really thought of myself in that context because I am quite an open person and I'm quite a natural oversharer. If you find yourself sitting next to me at some random party, I'll probably tell you all sorts of things you never wanted to know. But this was a different level of vulnerability because I was being really honest and I didn't see any point in either doing that episode or writing this book if I wasn't going to be completely honest. Yes. And it was really interesting when you were saying how there's being honest like one-on-one but when you're honest and like everyone in your life can hear it not just kind of random strangers on the tube but actually like ex-boyfriends your family you know is very exposing but I think I think everyone should be more honest yeah that's such a perceptive thing to say Emma because I was so worried about my parents reading the book that was the thing that I was most scared of first of all because there's a whole chapter on dating and you know Mm. I talk about one night stands and stuff that you don't that I would never talk to my parents about usually and I also they're in the book and I wanted them to feel that I'd done them justice and you're absolutely right it's almost the people who know you that you're most worried about reading it if Mm -hmm. I haven't met someone then I don't feel as scared in a way because it's completely up to them what opinion they formulate yeah but with people that I love and that I respect it was really nerve-wracking and my parents read it before it came out in proof form and were so amazing and supportive oh, that's lovely. immediately and that, that's the other nice thing as you all know from writing books when you give people um, a kind of word document sometimes people take ages to read it and you're sitting there in an agony of uncertainty about what they might think and amazingly my parents basically like read it overnight so that was that was a relief (laughs) oh so so good yeah it's true it's it's like when my friends say they listen to my podcast weirdly I find that strange I'm like don't listen yeah (laughs) and it's like they're the people that won't judge me it's weird um but you talk about one of your first jobs being at the evening standard and you've been like in this world surrounded by on paper successful people it feels like a long time yeah and what I loved is like all these anecdotes where you've interviewed all these like successful celebrities and actually I feel like you have had a really unique look into that world and you've seen that it's not all what we think it is and I love that you're kind of reporting back from that because I still think we're in a time where we are so lured into this false world of false narrative of fame I totally agree there's a whole chapter in the book entitled how to fail at being Gwyneth Paltrow because I was commissioned by a Sunday newspaper a couple of years ago to live life as Gwyneth Paltrow for a week 
and it involved lots of ludicrous things like steaming my vagina which is the one thing I get asked most about <laughs> in my entire journalistic career um, and and going to a Tracy Anderson workout masterclass which was an absolute nightmare and at the end of that week I realized that being Gwyneth Paltrow costs an enormous amount of money and requires an enormous amount of time and I don't have that time or money and I am not an A-list celebrity, but we live in a culture where we have disintermediated access to these celebrities on Instagram and social media mm. platforms. And therefore we're encouraged to believe that we should and can be like them. But actually the rest of us are just living our lives without personal macrobiotic chefs. And we're made to feel that we're p- failing at this utterly impossible standard. And And the final chapter in the book is a chapter about how to fail at success. And in that, I quote various celebrities that I've interviewed. And and one of them was Robert Pattinson, who Mm. gave me this really beautiful, really vulnerable interview about how at the height of his fame, he was suffering from extraordinary anxiety because he was constantly being followed by paparazzi and fans. And he was in therapy and he, he just said, you know, most of the famous people I know are not okay because they have to handle with uh, handle this extraordinary pressure so at the same time as being famous is actually not all that it's cracked up to be it's also what we mere mortals are encouraged to aspire to yeah and that just means unhappiness for everyone really totally and then on top of that they've got this layer of guilt going on because I read an interview that you did with the independent and I felt like there was a little bit of a suggestion there of like what do you know about failure Elizabeth you wrote your book on an, a balcony in LA and look at your life and like look yeah. at your incredible glamorous but that I think I think that's like shaming someone into not being honest then like with Robert Patterson or Simon Pegg and the people you talk about it's very easy to say shut up you've got everything exactly and also I think that there's a sort of you know there's a misapprehension there obviously I think social media is wonderful and is in many ways a force for good but I curate what I show on there obviously and I'm I have chosen not to be someone who is going to show you when I am crying. (laughs) I'm so behind people who do choose to do that. I don't choose to do it because I suppose that is a limit that I value around my privacy. And I totally acknowledge my own privilege. I am extremely lucky. I'm a white middle-class woman. I own a laptop. I'm in the top 1% of the global population for those reasons. I have no idea what it's like to be a woman of colour or to be trans or to be homeless or to suffer from a chronic illness. And I'm very aware of that. And it would be patronising for me to try and speak from for any of those people. And um, I'm aware of my privilege and I'm extremely lucky. At the same time, I've worked very, very hard and I have gone through some stuff and I feel that I can speak to that. And what you see on Instagram is maybe five percent of my actual Mm. life Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um and that's just the way I choose to live it so yeah I I agree with you that I think people make assumptions and and there's that famous saying about like everyone's fighting a private battle Mm -hmm. that you know nothing about and that's why we should seek to have greater compassion for people a hundred percent and I I spoke about this before on an episode with Bella Mackey actually and we were talking about how of course privilege is really important to talk about but it's also important to talk about the really sad news over the last however for many years forever actually of really successful people ending their own lives yeah we i think it's just something that we're allowed to discuss and talk about i think that's a very sophisticated point actually and i've 
just written a column about Mike Thalatesis. And I, what I wrote in this column was that I'm a massive Love Island fan. And when I saw his name trending on Twitter, my first assumption was that it would be a humorous story about him having got really drunk at a nightclub or something. And then I pressed on the link and was extraordinarily shocked and saddened to see that he had taken his own life. And I cannot imagine the pain that his family are going through. And it made me really evaluate how I watch Love Island. Mm. Because primarily, of course, I watch it for entertainment. And I don't think I am guilty of thinking these aren't real people. I mean, I'm aware of that they live three-dimensional lives. And yet when Mike was on, I think I was guilty of making him into a sort of caricature in my head. And, and I made the mistake of thinking he's incredibly handsome and ha- is full of bravado seemingly. And he seems to have the world at his feet. And actually, then you discover that he was in such a degree of traumatic pain that death by suicide was the only way out in his head. And what a tragic waste. And it really made me think about that. Yeah. And the chapter on babies yeah. was I, I my, personally my favourite because I do think as well that there doesn't seem to be a huge amount out there actually to comfort or to read about. I know that Farah Store talks a lot about being child free and, and every story seems slightly different. So it's hard to group everyone together, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I actually read as well that I didn't know that um, an episode of Fleabag recently was sort of inspired by you. Yeah. Because I, I felt like that was a coincidence of like, it, you know, it's like confirmation bias. Like I'm probably looking yeah. <laughs> for these stories and suddenly it felt like they were around. And so I guess a lot of that's come from you. Well, thank you for saying it's your favourite chapter because it's my favourite chapter too. And it was because I had so much I wanted to get down on paper because when I was going through fertility procedures, I had two unsuccessful rounds of IVF, had a miscarriage at three months, I then later froze my eggs. These were all things that I, I knew very little about. And there was no literature out there, actually, other than internet forums. And no one tells women. No one says, by the way, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I don't know anything. I'm 30 in a few months. I had no idea. All my sex education at school was based around how horrific it would be for you if you got pregnant accidentally. None of it taught me about my finite egg reserve, the fact that my fertility wasn't a guarantee. And and I sure as hell know that men weren't taught that either. Mm-hmm. So I feel that that's a massive lack in our educational system and not enough is written about it. And the reason not enough is written about it is because historically it's been marginalised as a woman's problem. And that's not acceptable. And it's not acceptable to be made to feel that you're a failure as a woman for not being able to procreate, which was definitely my experience when I was having IVF and I was told again and again oh you're failing to respond to the drugs Mm. and so it was always the fault was mine and it's difficult to think of another illness or condition that would be treated in that way and um, so these were all things that I really wanted to say and the flea bag thing came about because Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a good friend of mine and through the years obviously we've actually do you know what when we first met one of the first proper conversations we had was about my miscarriage um and and I and subconsciously she had obviously like filed that away and 
it obviously mixed in with loads of other stuff that she wanted to say in the brilliant way that she does say things. I mean, I'm just starting to watch the second series of Fleabag and I think it's a masterpiece. And um, yeah, a few months ago, she called me up and she's like, I'm really sorry, but I think (laughs) unwittingly I've written this scene and I think unwittingly it was kind of inspired or something that you said and I'm really sorry and I was like please don't be I'm completely thrilled that it's getting out there and I knew that in her hands it would be a piece of brilliance and um that was yeah so I miscarried in a restaurant I started my miscarriage in a restaurant toilet although mine was over brunch not over Mm. dinner and um I think that just those sort of things really show to you how I do think women go through an awful lot And again, Fleabag has that amazing scene with Kristen Scott Thomas about women being born with pain and then carrying Mm. it through their lives. And women go through so much and they're made to feel slightly grubby about it. Like they've got Mm. to hide it. So miscarriages occur in restaurant toilets when you're having family dinners or work dinners or that you're meeting a contact and you scurry away to inject yourself with hormones Mm. to trigger egg release, which was also my experience. And it's all kind of, shielded and I'm I'm just sick of it I'm sick yeah. of that I'm, I'm like sick of the shame oh my god that that um scene because it's in the first episode isn't it and I went to see the preview at the BFI so, so did I and when um everyone was there and it was you know those things have such an amazing atmosphere and I was crying my eyes out at that bit because obviously Sean Clifford acted it really well but it was also that moment of like we all see ourselves in that moment of having to hide something. Yeah. And having to just like, you know, button yourself up again and go back to the dinner and pretend everything's fine. Like, it's like that scene in Love Actually with Emma Thompson where she like... Oh, that scene is my favourite scene and, in the I whole film. I think it's film. because all yeah. women can relate to that feeling of like, just get on with it. Yes. Like, women are so strong. So strong. We're so strong. And because our strength takes a different form in, in many ways... it's it's never been given its due I don't think and the other thing that I've just realized is that hormones play a massive part in how you are as a woman and I'm 40 I turned 40 last November and I just realized in my late 30s hormones were kicking in on a whole other level and I downloaded this app which is a hormone horoscope which basically was like having a psychic in my head it was like you might be feeling like this today and I was like I am (laughs) don't do any public speaking on this day it was really helpful and again we're not taught about that um and I remember asking my mother about it I was like did you notice a change in your hormones in your late 30s she's like absolutely and it was a conversation I had with her I think I just noticed that I'm much more affected. So, um, oh it's, God, that worries me. So I'm, I'm already a, like a total kind of sensitive, nervous wreck. Not in a bad way necessarily. So sometimes I will be feeling more creative than others, or sometimes, you know, I'll be feeling uh, angrier or more frustrated. And and I don't know about you, but every single time my period comes around, I sort of forget. And then I'll be feeling like so down yes. and grey. And I'll be thinking, oh gosh, well, that's it then. I'm just, I'm really, that's it for me for the rest of my life. I'm basically a sort of invalid. And then your period comes and you're like, oh, that's what it was. Yes. And every single 100%. time it happens to me. Every single time I don't twig that <laughs> no, it might be this monthly occurrence. I find myself just like face planting the bed crying. My boyfriend's like, are you okay? And, and I'm just, I have no reason. That's yes. the sign. You're yes. like, I'm trying to make something up. Like, why am I crying? <laughs> it's so obvious. It's 
totally that. It's like making something up. It's like, I can't, I mean, this is, that must be a rational thing. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's a real feeling. So don't tell me it's not because I'm really feeling Like I'm this. really crying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I wondered what your, the hardest bit was for you to write because it, it's very honest in bits. Were there bits where you just kind of felt like you had to leave it and come back to it or? Uh, the baby's chapter was hard in that it was emotional to write but it, that also made it the best one to write because I really felt that I faced up to some stuff. Mm. It helped me feel at peace with the notion that I am probably not going to be a biological mother. And there's a great deal sa- of sadness that has gone into feeling that. Um, but that chapter helped me through mm. it. Um, I suppose the one that was hardest to write was... The one on families was hard because it didn't exist in the initial proposal. Oh, right. And it was my editor who suggested that it would be a good thing to do. And the reason I had shied away from doing it was because I didn't want to tell anyone else's story. And I certainly didn't want in any way to upset my parents or to mm. offend them unwittingly. Um, and so I had to write that chapter really carefully. And um, my point in that chapter is not that anyone does anything wrong necessarily in families it's that in any family unit of any description you're allotted a role as a child there's some sort of role that you're that you grow into and that can be a wonderful thing but it can also be a slightly restrictive thing and it it, my my failure as an adult was to carry on being that role that I I thought I had as a child so interesting so I was a younger sister my my sister's four years older than me and is like brilliant at everything and when I was growing up I was constantly trying to keep up and to be like her and I never felt good enough now that was something that I had in my own head and that mindset kept haunting me in my 20s mm. and I was trying to keep up with absolutely everyone and and you can't you you can't you need to be your own person we put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect in our family setup and you know adverts and things don't help around Christmas where everyone's like having an amazing time and I look back and I'm like my parents were amazing yeah and I would always compare my family to other people and I look back and I'm like they were great yeah and we were unique it's like you're in my head I totally get that and I think it's a really natural thing to do as a child particularly as a teenager but it's that classic thing of like your parents turning up to pick you up from school and you're just crushingly embarrassed by what one of them is wearing or the fact that they're late or what kind of car they're driving or because you're so trying to seek out your own identity and work out who you are that everything is mortifying and I'm completely with you my parents are amazing because they are utterly unique they made me feel I could do anything like when I said I wanted to write they totally felt that that was completely valid that this four-year-old was saying she wanted to write books and they were incredibly encouraging of that and I'm so grateful I mean that to me is a form of extreme privilege like that Mm. that sense of opportunity that I had because I was taken seriously as a child yes yeah it's it's funny the different the different kind of layers of privilege because I think having a supportive family is like right up there isn't it definitely but with um the podcast so where it all began it feels like and I've listened to you on a few other podcasts um I love the media masters one you did thought that was amazing but but you sort of you sort of said that the pod doing the podcast has genuinely changed you changed your life I mean mine has yeah how can interview how can it not you know having these intimate conversations with people and feeling like you're spreading your message it's very unfiltered and I just wanted 
to ask you about that, how it's sort of changed your outlook on things. It's been a real privilege, number one, because um, I spent however long, 17 years in journalism, interviewing people, famous people for various publications and having to write it up. And I always felt when I wrote up the interview that there were never enough words to do the person I was interviewing full justice. And, and quite often some of the more nuanced things that they said would just end up on the cutting room floor because I didn't have space for them. And and quite often I had a brief from an editor who wanted a certain thing. And it is so wonderful to be able to do an interview exactly how I want to do it. And to get people, hopefully, to open up about their vulnerable selves. And I suppose one of the things that I've learned is that people are willing to do that if you approach them with sincerity and honesty and if you're willing to share as well. And that's just been a, a, a really, really beautiful thing for me. Mm. It's been amazing. And then to see something that was, honestly, I started it as a very personal project and it came from, I mean, the immediate impulse was because I got dumped, you know, and mm. I, I was having all these conversations with my female friends about what we learned from breakups. And I looked back and I realized that every time a relationship had ended, I'd, become stronger and learn something extremely important about myself and so then I got thinking about failure in a wider sense and what it would be like to have these conversations but I honestly did it for myself really I followed my own instinct I drew my own logo as everyone can probably tell because it's like a felt tip rosette and and I read that you sold your wedding dress to I sold my wedding the first series yes that's exactly. incredible put the money into that and hired a producer because I had no technical knowledge and I put eight episodes out there and I was completely fine with the thought that those eight episodes would be enough and they existed in the way that I wanted them to exist and I was also fine with maybe half a dozen people listening and then to find something so personal connect on such a universal level was one of the greatest gifts that I think life has given me because it makes you feel less alone mm. and it is ironic that it is the most successful thing I've ever done in 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 every respect. In but in the most important respect for me is about connection, and so mm. it's made me feel more connected in a really real way than ever before. Um, so it's been lovely. And the other the practical thing that I've learned is that everyone feels they failed at their twenties mm. or feel that they're failing at them currently, because I think your twenties are just such a difficult decade of transition from yeah. I mean, you would know, like from going, yeah. a lot of people have just left full-time education and then they're going into a, a messy world, which is not defined by exams or goals and everyone else seems to be nailing it. And at the same time, you're like, should I be in long-term personal relationships or should I be having flings? And everyone else seems to be having a better time than you. And it's difficult. And actually, I think the main achievement of your 20s is, is getting through them. Yes, 100%. I'm still here. Yay. We I all are. When do you turn 30? You told me earlier. In June. Okay. Yeah. And I'm doing, I'm doing kind of what Dolly talks about, like that sort of, I'm mourning the decade, but I'm really ready for it. I can't wait to be 30. You talk a lot about dealing with people online who say mean things. And that is such a, I think that's such a being in your 20s thing. Yeah, it is. Like, it's like self-harm going on Amazon, looking at the reviews and like re really reading them again and again and really like hurting yourself. It's horrible. And I used to do the same thing in personal relationships where I was obsessed with my partner's exes. And I would pick at the stories that they told me about them like scabs. Mm. I would want to know more at the same time as knowing that it was bad for me to know more and that I would I was deliberately making myself feel really bad and I stopped doing that and my boyfriend 
now from the very beginning I was like I don't want to know anything about your past relationships which and now I'm secure enough in our relationship we've been together for a year that I am okay with him talking about it and um he has been immensely respectful of that and that is because I know that it's bad for me now Mm. and once you make the decision not to pursue things that are actively bad for you because why would you do it you wouldn't want your best friend to do that and you wouldn't be saying to yourself well put your hand in the flame and burn yourself and just make yourself feel really rubbish because of the pain so why would I do that on a mental level and as soon as I decided not to read Amazon reviews and also not to read online comments on newspaper pieces I've written in a way having made the decision it was quite easy Mm. I was just like well I'm not going to do that and and I found it easier than I thought I would. It's just because it's so clear in my head. I'm like, no, I'm not yeah. allowed to do that. And nothing good can come of it. Oh, because you're different. seeking out, you're seeking out pain. You're not yes. seeking out the compliments. Yes. Brené Brown talks a lot about that, where you go, you Love find you find something horrible and you basically like wallow in it and you like, you, you almost get like comfortable in it. And it's like very icky thing to do. And it's funny because I read this piece on The Atlantic, which was going around recently about having like a nemesis, having a career nemesis, someone that you are like really jealous of. Yeah. And you like go on their page and like look at what they're doing. Like a hate follow, I suppose. And I just thought, I really don't want to be involved in that. Yeah, That sounds the, the same as going on Amazon and reading horrible reviews. Definitely. And I also think historically women have been pitted against each other. There's been an inordinate sense of competition, whether it be finding a mate or mm. looking the best or doing your best at work. And I think the greatest revolutionary act we can do as women is to raise each other up because actually a rising tide will raise all boats. Mm. And that's what we have to, that's how we have to think in terms of, changing the narrative for the next generation let's be kind and compassionate and supportive of each other because there is room for all of us there really is totally i wanted to ask you quickly actually about the gwyneth paltrow chapter because i listened to gwyneth paltrow on a podcast recently she's a guest on one of her friends podcasts dax shepherd he does the armchair expert so they, they obviously know each other well and he says to her you're a trigger for a lot of people mm. if if someone is doing well you're going to trigger a lot of people to feel shit about themselves and really made me think you know I know Gwyneth is not perfect and puts things out into the world but she just wanders around triggering people and she's yes. probably she's probably just living her own life it's such a good point I had this experience which I'm not comparing myself in any way to Gwyneth Paltrow but I went to a wedding before Christmas and someone said to me and she was a little bit drunk. She was like, I, I had to mute you on, I had to unfollow you on Instagram because you're just a bit much. And I was I was mortified. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry that I am that person for you was my initial reaction. My friend was like, that was really rude. And it made me realise that- um, Oh, that happens to a lot of people. I, I'm glad yeah. you have said that actually, because I think people don't talk about it enough. No. And I realise, and I, comple- I, I completely understand that sometimes there is no- rational reason why you might be triggered by someone and therefore it's really healthy for you to mute them I get it I'm mortified at the thought that I am that person for other people but I'm also a realist and I probably am and I'm sorry if I am but I can't change myself and nor do I seek to I uh, what you see is really authentic to use that overused word but that's why I put certain parameters around my life so that what you see there is, you know, it's an accurate representation of that 5% of my life. Um, and and when I think about it, I often think of Keira Knightley 
Now, Kira Knightley, I interviewed a couple of years ago for Harper's Bazaar, and she was absolutely wonderful. Smart, funny, self-deprecating, had extremely interesting things to say about womanhood, about what it was to be a mother, unsmug, thoughtful, ate a croissant for breakfast, all of that sort of stuff. And she endured so much shit. Mm. She endured and still does people hating her face, um, saying that she was a pathetic actress, paparazzi calling her the C word to get a reaction, like so much. And I often think of her and I'm like, that's how interesting that she can still be a great person. And what she's had to endure, like hardly any of us thankfully will ever have to experience <laughs> and it goes yeah. back to what we were saying at the beginning that everyone's fighting their own battle that you have no clue and so you know it's good not to just imagine the worst let's try and think the best totally god it's so complex because i i feel like i put up the best pictures when i'm feeling the shittest i think there's a correlation to that so when i see someone going you know throwback thursday to me on this beach they're probably having a shit day Such and they're trying point. to make themselves feel better. And I think compassion and like just having that moment of, I'm going to th- just think a bit more deeply about this before making a judgment. I mean, it's easier said than done. Such a good point. And the other thing that I've noticed on Instagram, which I'm sure you have as well, is that the pictures that get the most likes are like selfies and pictures, and which is a weird dysfunctional thing. And that's a broader issue with the society that we live in. And I remember talking to the actress Vicky McClure about this, who I love. And she was like, you know, I post stuff about, she does a lot of work for dementia charities. She's like, I post stuff about that and it never gets as many likes. It's just like a selfie of me in a makeup chair. And that's interesting. And I think that one should treat Instagram with caution because of it. But I totally agree with you. There's that amazing song, Emotionless by Drake, in which he talks about that. He talks about how, there's a woman who's happily married until she puts down her phone. So her marriage is only, and like, mm. and about how he he's not protecting his kid from the world. He's protect, no, he's not protecting the world from his kid. He's protecting his kid from the world because there are all these people on Instagram pretending that they're having the most amazing time and going on trips to Rome and saving all the photos to post through the year. And I just think it's a really difficult time to be living through. And that's partly yeah. why I wrote this book actually as a corrective to that curated perfection because it is curated no I was thinking that when I read when I was reading your book I was thinking this is the antidote to that world it's if I was a bit younger as well reading this book I think I would find it so comforting it's like you're kind of hugging someone saying like it's okay (laughs) and it's the opposite of the Instagram scroll it's it's the opposite of all of that and I think it's amazing thank you I'm so, so happy it exists so just lastly I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours with with lots of wine but um (laughs) what are you hoping kind of people get from the book I feel like it's the same as the podcast you you want to make people feel less alone but I mean you literally took the words out of my mouth and now I've got to think of something <laughs> <Sorry>. else <laughs> but yeah it's just I always ask that question because I suppose you've done the hard work now and I, now people are going to read it yeah I think I want people to feel less alone and I want the flip side of that is that I want them to feel connected with other people and to understand that you can look at someone who seems so successful and seems to have it all. Someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is one of my former interviewees, or Robert Pattinson, or Nicole Kidman, who I also quote in the book. And you can make 
a knee-jerk assumption about who they are and how they live. And actually, every single one of us has endured some level of private pain. And to be open about those private moments is an act of generosity, because I think it's very democratising and helps people who might be struggling right now to think that there is light at the end of what might be a very long, very bruising, very dark tunnel. Mm. Um, And so that's really what I'd like people to get from it. Mm. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And can you give any clues into your next season of How to Fail or is that not allowed? No, I can. So you'll probably already know that my first guest is Vicky McClure, who I just quoted. And then I've also got um, the Guardian parliamentary sketchwriter, John Crace, who is unbelievable. He talks about living as a heroin addict for 10 years. Um, I've got Andy McNabb, the author of Bravo Two Zero. I love the variety and also learning something new about someone I don't know that well. And yeah, unpicking like the truth about people. It's incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a joy. This has been such a joy. We'll have to do part two. Yes, please. Very soon. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I loved it.